Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. No story in the news this spring loomed larger in the public consciousness than the trial of Derek Chauvin, a Minneapolis police officer charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter for the killing of George Floyd a year ago. As the trial unfolded, it often felt as if the whole world was watching, and when the jury began its deliberations on April 19th, it felt as if the whole world was holding its breath, hoping, praying that justice would be done and fearing what might happen if it wasn't. Thankfully, the wait was short, just one day, and the outcome was righteous. Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts. When the verdicts were read out by the judge, I heaved a huge sigh of relief and then thought about the interview that we had scheduled for this episode of the podcast, since our guest had just published a book that begins with a moving meditation on George Floyd's death and goes on from there to address the deep and wide and vexing issues that his murder forced the country to confront. The book is entitled, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism, and its author is my friend Don Lemon. The state of our union is good, but getting better, somewhat uncertain, but I think we're on the right path to a more perfect union. Don Lemon is, of course, one of the most familiar faces on television, the host of CNN Tonight with Don Lemon. He is on the air five nights a week from 10 to midnight Eastern. He is also not incidentally the only black man in all of cable news to host a primetime show, which means that whenever we have a so-called conversation about race in America, Don has both a unique perspective on that discussion and role in conducting it. And he has not been shy about playing that part or expressing his views, especially in the Trump era. Perhaps the most famous example came in December 2018 when Don opened his show with the following words. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Don Lemon. The president of the United States is a racist. I wanted to talk with Don about all of this, of course, about his contentious relationship with the president or the former president, as it were, about Don's place in the media landscape and how his race factors in and his reaction to the Chauvin trial and the horrific spate of new police shootings of African-Americans that took place while the trial was going on and in its immediate aftermath. I also wanted to go deep on Don's book on his youth in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the challenges he has faced and overcome in the TV business due to the fact that he is, as I like to say, a double threat, not just openly black, but openly gay. And I really wanted to talk through something I've sensed in Don's work on air over the past few years, that as we have all had to cope with a nonstop succession of existential threats, to our health, to our social fabric, and to our democratic institutions, Don has behaved more and more like he has zero fucks to give, exhibiting a sense of freedom to cast aside the constraints of down the middle on the one hand, on the other hand, journalism, and call things exactly as he sees them. We covered all of this ground and more, and the conversation was terrific, which surprised me not at all. I will say from personal experience that cable news has more than its share of pomposity, self-aggrandizement, superficiality, and windbaggery, But in all the time that I've known Don Lemon, those qualities have never been his jam. Instead, Don is open, honest, genuine, smart, and down to earth with a winning sense of humor, including about himself. Those traits make him a delight to hang out with. They also make him a fantastic guest on Hell and High Water. It has been quite a year, and we are still smack dab in the middle of it. We are mourning the loss of so many and... I have to be honest, if things had gone differently this past week in Minneapolis, I might have traded in my heels for marching boots. Now, I know that a lot of you 
people at home want to reach for your remote when you feel like Hollywood is preaching to you. But as a mother of a black son, I know the fear that so many live with, and no amount of fame or fortune changes that. Okay? So there's Regina King at the 93rd Academy Awards talking about her relief over the obviously correct verdict in the George Floyd slash Derek Chauvin murder trial. And we are here with the one and only Don Lemon of CNN <laughs> and the author of the fantastic new book, which we're going to talk a lot about. This is the fire. What I say to my friends about racism. Don, my friend, good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me on. I wish I could see you in person, but you know. That day will come, my brother. <laughs> we'll be... We'll be able to, at some point, I'll see you again in one of those fancy pants restaurants that you hang out in and I'll, and I'll walk up and we'll embrace and we won't have to worry about, about our affection for each other killing us. So I'm thinking about Regina King when I saw her on the Academy Awards give that speech and there was so much, I mean, obviously it's a moment right now, but I just read your book, which of course is a book about racism, but is structured as a, a letter to, to younger members of your family and begins with you talking about the impact that the George Floyd's, I, I don't even like to call it killing or murder. I like to call it, you know, public execution of George Floyd, the impact it had on you and your tears. And I wonder what it was like for you to both cover the trial as it unfolded and what the impact on you was of the verdict. Well, listen, I'm not a, obviously the mother of a black son, but it was similar to what Regina King said. It was something that was very personal to all African-Americans, all people of color. And I mean, something that was very personal, I think, to all Americans. But I think that obviously for me, as someone who has a platform, even, you know, who, who's able to get his feelings out every night on television for at least two hours, uh, weeknights, I still had to do something more than just sit there on television and sort of you know, synthesize it through, you know, a media lens for the rest of the country. I wanted to do something better for the generation coming up. And quite frankly, I just needed to get it out. I needed, I needed the therapy. So that's, you know, that's how the book came about. But I think, I think, I th obviously African-Americans feel similarly to what Regina King feels, but I think all Americans, especially initially felt that way. I mean, how could you not after seeing that video, John? Yeah. I mean, look, I think it was a profoundly, obviously, emotional experience for a lot of people, black and white, more for obviously black people, but a lot of people obviously shook by watching it. For us, it was sadly confirmation that this does happen. Yes. And it was sort of a now you see moment. Sure. I mean, even though we were all I mean, it was awful to watch someone's life be snuffed out that way. But for us, it was a now you see what we're talking about. You can't really deny this. And I think for a lot of white Americans, it was really eye-opening like wow i can't believe this happens yeah like holy shit like yeah. they, they tell they everybody says this kind of thing happens and here it is here i mean is. it's obviously one of the most egregious i mean the egregiousness of it is a large part of what made i think the verdict i mean clearly an open and shut verdict for a lot of people because those nine minutes and however many seconds they ended up they kind of extended the time frame on it in the trial but it's not just that john i mean l listen i think it was egregious because we saw it and obviously the young woman who took the video, Yes. imagine if she hadn't taken that video, but imagine how often that happens. And if you look at the original police report, the original police report read nothing like what actually happened. So right. think about how many other times this happens and we just don't see it because someone is not there to record it. Right. Well, it leads to the next question that I have for you, right? Which is everybody has had the same, to some extent, people have had the same reaction, which is thank God that justice and the limited way that justice can be done in a case like this can't bring back George Floyd, but can at least we can get what the criminal justice system can can afford here. Mm -hmm. Thank God the jury made the right choice, made it quickly on mm -hmm. all three counts. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, 
there's, you know, the Dante Wright shooting happening in Minneapolis at the time of the trial, mm-hmm. you know, Makia Bryant in Ohio, you know, now we have in North Carolina, the Andrew Bound Jr. case. Here's my question. Like I was talking to Sharpton about this last night on the phone. There's been such a flood of these police shootings of unarmed black people, in many cases, youth, just in the last few weeks. And I, my question is, is it on the rise, do you think? Or is it that we just see it now because George Floyd and other things, you know, there are many of these cases we could rattle off all the names. Is it that our eyes have now been opened, that there's more body cams around, that it's just more visible? Or is it actually increasing? Because it feels like it's increasing. I think it's just more visible. I don't think it's increasing. I think that there's now actual recorded evidence of it before. You know, it was interesting because as the Derek Chauvin verdict was being read, the first text that I got was from my sister. And she said, thank you, Steve Jobs. And I said, what do you mean? She said, thank you, Steve Jobs, for all of these cameras we now have in our pockets. Because without these cameras, we wouldn't be seeing these things happen. We wouldn't have gotten the verdict we got in Minneapolis in the Chauvin trial. There's no cell phone video of Brown. But, you know, we wouldn't have seen with a a lot of these incidents. So I don't think it's up. I mean, I would be surprised. It, it, It may be down. But I just think that we're seeing so many. I think police are maybe more hesitant now to just, you know, whip out a gun with and, and shoot someone with impunity. So I think it's just being recorded. I don't think it's on the rise. Well, it's terrifying, you know, on some level that even in the wake of this trial where, you know, if in theory, you seeing Derek Chauvin cuffed and taken off to prison for we don't know how long yet, but for some decent stretch of time, we'll assume you would think at this moment, if you were a rational white police officer in America, you'd be like, hey, you know what? Scrutiny's pretty high here. Maybe I should like tread lightly. But instead, while this trial is in the headlines and while everybody's <laughs> focused on it, it doesn't seem to be restraining anyone. And I raise it as a serious issue because that's got to be part of the solution here. There are many, many things to talk about in terms of the solutions to this problem. But the notion that there is a penalty to be paid and accountability has got to be part of the solution of getting police officers to behave uh, not behave the way that they are behaving in these cases. Yeah, but it's kind of part of the solution has to be training as well, because I think that police officers are trigger happy. I think they try to solve everything with a gun. And listen, I'm not a police officer. I wasn't trained in policing. I do have common sense, but I, I think it's a matter of training that police officers can't be so quick to use deadly force. And I think that's their first training. And they are, police officers are trained to neutralize the threat, right? And to shoot, right? body mass center. More often than not, that's going to take you out, regardless of what is, if they're pulling you over for a traffic violation or they're pulling you over for, I don't know, attempted murder or whatever it is. The training is kind of all the same. It's one size fits all. You know, you write about, um, about growing up in suburban Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a place where I once went to a really crazed ecstasy fueled rave when I was a young man. Um, I love Baton Rouge and I love Louisiana. Uh, uh, it's absolutely 100 percent true. Uh, right about like 1990 or so. You know, oh, those were the good that years. Moment. That's when I was yeah. hanging out doing a, yeah. you know, similar yeah. things. Where was it? Like near LSU? Oh, dude! Like I, I could remember this. I was out of my fucking. I was out of my fucking tree. I, I, I'm lucky I can remember it was in Baton Rouge. I think it would have been, you know, probably not that far from your house. I'm curious if you, you know, you write about a lot of stuff in the book. I don't think. Well, have you, did you have experiences as a kid or as an adult where you had encounters with cops that where you felt like either in, in mortal jeopardy or in significant jeopardy 
that was rooted in your race? Well, I, I don't know if it was mortal jeopardy, but yes, I've had several incidents. There was one when I was not too long ago when I lived in Atlanta and a police officer pulled me over just for speeding, right? I was coming back from the beach from Pensacola, driving back up to Atlanta, and I wouldn't pull over on the side of the interstate. One, it was too narrow. Two, I wanted to be in a place that was where there was a lot of people and it was well lit. And I had an account, he's, you know, threatened to take me to jail. And I'm like, for what? Because I'm looking out for my safety and yours, because I don't want to pull over on a narrow, narrow shoulder, or I want to make sure that I'm in a place where there's lots of people and witnesses. So that was one. I had to hire an attorney. He was afraid that I was going to somehow try to, you know, railroad him into something and was quite relieved when we got to court. And I said, because um, I think he tried to charge me with something like fleeing from police or something. I forget exactly what the, the violation was, but it was enough where I had to hire an attorney. And we finally got to court. I had to go back to this. I think it was Alabama or something. I forget where I was going through. And he said, the attorney, I said, I'm not disputing the speeding ticket. <laughs> yes, I was yeah, right, speeding. Right, yeah. I'm just disputing the, you know, the way in which you characterize this. And they were, it was like this. Oh, okay. Um, so, <laughs> so I had that. Were and you then, famous um, by that point? Did they know who you were or was this before you were well-known? No, they figured it out. Not the same as now. Obviously, I'm in prime time. This is yeah. when I was in afternoons right. on CNN in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that happened, but they knew who I, who I was. Then they kind of figured it out like, oh shit, he's the news guy. And you know what? He, they didn't figure it out until the black woman cop came because they were ready to throw <laughs> me in jail. And she kind of took him right. to the side and said, yeah, you may not want to do that because of this. And then, uh, yeah. w- when I was a kid, I had the, you know, incidents with police, like whose car is this? Where'd you get this car? And right. it was my parents, you know, yeah. Cadillac or Lincoln. And so, you know, I've had those incidents. And then I had one right. where I was racially profiled in a record store. This was back in the early 2000s. And I called the cops because they profiled me, followed me out of the store, accused me of stealing. And when I called the cops, the cops came over and started talking to the person I called the cops on. And he said, he told me, you get back in the car and sit down. This gentleman called police. And I looked at him and I said, this was in Philadelphia. I said, no, officer, I'm sorry. I'm the one who called police. And he's like, oh, 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 oh. Like he was so confused in that moment. He didn't know what to do. So she got racially profiled in the record store. And then you got racially profiled, and then racially by, the profiled by the police. Responding and then, to the call. And then the police officer looked and he goes, aren't you the guy from Channel 10? And I said, yes. And then he walked back over to the security guard and he said, I think you better start looking for a new job. Oh. <laughs> After I showed him the receipt. So there you go. Sometimes good to be on TV. And yeah. I- now that I'm thinking about it, I also had one with the police twice in Chicago. So, but anyway, same yeah. sort of thing. So, yeah. So it's happened. The, yeah. And, and most of those, you know, are, are instances where I bet if we took a common theme of those, it would be the obvious one, which is like any of the things you did, if you were happy to be as white as I am, you would don't think you would have gotten the same kind of treatment. Yeah. And only, only one that did I ever get a ticket for really, because there was no reason to be pulled over. I mean, and that's part of the thing here, right? I mean, you make the obvious point, right? Which is that, you know, you were not in mortal jeopardy in any of those cases, but every one of those cases is a kind of small indignity, right? That becomes for a lot of people who are black people is a thing that like just becomes kind of what you expect. Like you're going to be profiled, hassled, given shit, in small ways or and now you know increasingly in large ways just for being black yes yes but it's also your heart is racing like literally every time i get pulled over i think i'm gonna have a heart attack yeah. and then you have to be super super kind 
to the officer so that, you know, because they could license and registration, they're just really rude. And it's just, you know, there's no sort of humanity or respect or what have you until, you know, if they figure out who I am and then they're all of a sudden nice to me. Yeah, it's a very scary prospect for a black man to be pulled over by a police officer. It's also, you know, I think, and I want to play a little Joe Biden and Lindsey Graham in a second, but if you think about this question that bedevils people all the time, which is why is it different here? Why is it that America is the only country in the Western world that has this problem, these problems, right? And you think about the structure before we get to racism in a second, even before we get to that, you think about a structure in which you have chronic underfunding of mental health, mm-hmm. chronic underfunding of homelessness, chronic underfunding of with relation, dealing with poverty. Mm-hmm. You got all that, all those problems, right? Then you've got more guns mm-hmm. from a cop's point of view. You never know. People might people can be armed that so you pull over. So you're up, you're on on edge. As you said, they're trained to subdue, right? Mm-hmm. So cops are on edge because they think as someone's going to be armed or could be armed. And you basically throw police onto the front lines of dealing with all of these problems rather than social services, rather than all the other things, the other ways you might want to try to address homelessness, poverty, drug abuse, all these things. You know, the the mix the admixture of the underfunding making police the front line on those questions and the pervasiveness of guns like that to me, that's like how big this problem is before you even get to race. Mm-hmm. It gets to the thing of like, what's a big giant structural problem that you're dealing with? You know, where we're the only country in the world who deals with the problem in that way and has the pervasiveness of, of what, like, why is the guy who could administer deadly force who's carrying a gun dealing with a lot of these problems? Like, why does the guy need a gun to, to, to give you a speeding ticket, Don? Why is that? Why is that like the way we should do it? Right on. And that's the whole idea behind defund the police. I know people hate that slogan. I'm not a big fan of that slogan, defund the police. I think it's detrimental to what people really want to do because it turns allies off. But a lot of what what the folks want to do within the defund the police movement, the, the ideas are good. Should police have to go out on every call? Should they be the one-stop shop for every single infraction in society? I think most people, Democrat or Republican, most reasonable people realize, no, that shouldn't happen. But there are other there are two things on top of that that you didn't mention that I think exacerbates the situation. One is that we live in a post-truth society. Yes. Right now. Yes. And so you know, people only believe what they want to believe. And the other thing is that we we live in a society where we people don't know the true history of the country. They don't know exactly the origins of policing in America and how it relates to black people and slave catching and all of that. So uh, our relationship with police, our relationship is different. And we live in a society, again, where post-truth, so you don't know out of any police encounter whose truth is going to matter. The one that is made up or the actual truth, which is, you know, which is bizarre. I'd never thought we'd be living in a in a world that is post-truth. So all those things you, you said, that plus those two things on top of it. Plus, obviously, race. So I'd, let's play let's play Joe Biden right now and then play Lindsey Graham for a couple of different looks at the same question. You know, two sides oh, of the geez. same coin. First, Joe Biden. In order to deliver real change and reform, we can and we must do more to reduce the likelihood that tragedies like this will ever happen and occur again. To ensure that black and brown people, or anyone, so they don't fear the interactions with law enforcement, that they don't have to wake up knowing that they can lose their very life in the course of just living their life. And this takes acknowledging and confronting head-on systemic racism 
and the racial disparities that exist in policing and in our criminal justice system more broadly. All right, now let's listen to Lindsey Graham responding to that very clip. We just elected a two-term African-American president. The vice president is of African-American Indian descent. So our systems are not racist. America is not a racist country. Within every society, you have bad actors. Uh, The Chauvin trial was a just uh, result. Reform the police, yes. Call them all racist, no. Uh, You know, America is a work in progress, but best best place on the planet, and Joe Biden spends a lot of time running the place down. I wish he'd stop it. So, Don, I ask you, <laughs> Don, I ask you. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, Who is Lindsey Graham anymore? Uh, good, very good question. We could do a whole podcast just on that. But, you know, I think it's self-evident that you and I would both agree with Joe Biden about on the merit. But what do you do about it when there is for, there's a CBS poll that says 46 percent of Republicans think that the Chauvin verdicts mm-hmm. were wrong? That's, that's what I was saying to you about the post-truth society. I'm glad you brought up that poll because right. I was going to bring it up. But go on. Sorry. So that's the question. I mean, what do you do about it? Lindsey Graham is not he's a, an idiot and an asshole. But, you know, that, that view of the world, which is, hey, we elected Barack Obama and we got Kamala Harris as a vice president. We can't be racist. Mm-hmm. So what are, you, what are you talking about? Don't run down the police. We don't have racism. There's no race problem. That's what got us in trouble. That's not a view that only Lindsey Graham has. But that's that's what got us in trouble after Barack Obama. That's how we got Donald Trump. It's because everyone thought we lived in this post-racial society, right? That there was, you know, oh, it can't be racist because we elected a black president. And then look what you got. A birther in chief, right? Who, by the way, said the very similar things that Rick Santorum, this whole birtherism and this whole thing about America. That's how we got Donald Trump. That's how we got very fine people on both sides. That's how Heather Heyer died. That's how we got an insurrection on Capitol Hill. Right. It's because people who have this foolish thinking that America, there's no systemic racism and that we have somehow gone past racism. Lindsey Graham, anybody with half a brain should know better. Lindsey Graham knows better. For me, I think it's a political grift because he knows that it's going to appeal to the Trump base. So he says these things because he's trying to appeal to them. But he should know better. And I I wish John McCain was here to keep Lindsey in check. But there are lots of things that I could say about Lindsey Graham and what he says on television and who he is. But, you know, I want to keep my job because I I think what he does is awful. I think he should be embarrassed. I'm surprised that he's able to hold political office with the views and the shit that he says. And there are people who, as you said, think the same thing. And that is why we are in trouble is because of that. And he keeps perpetuating that. And that's what Trumpism does. It keeps perpetuating that bullshit. Not only is he still in office, he ran against the best funded Democratic Senate candidate in the history of the world, certainly in the history of his state. And won. And and didn't even have a close race. He beat the living shit out of Jamie Harrison, who was a great, you know, lovely guy, you know, smart guy, good, well-funded candidate, did a good job. Lindsey still crushed him. You raised before the thing of defund the police and the ideas behind it, which we were both embracing. But you make a point in the book of saying you don't like I think you in passing said it just now that you don't like the phrase that you think it's a problem. So just explain, explain why you think if the ideas are good, why is defund the police as a slogan a problem per se? I know activists like that term and activists. It is their job to go from zero to 100. It gets activists jobs to be at 100 all the time. But as you know, from just living and also being in this business and covering politics, you have to be strategic. If you want to achieve things, there are certain times 
not certain times. You must always be strategic. I don't think that defund the police is a strategically smart slogan because I think it turns off allies because I think it makes people think you want to get rid of the police and no one wants to get rid of the police. You also give your enemies and your detractors ammunition and a message to say, look, they all want to get rid of, look how radical and leftist they are and extreme because they want to get rid of the police and they want to defund our good men and women. That's not exactly what they're saying is getting rid of the police. So I think, you know, a better slogan would be helpful. I know people, progressives don't like to hear me say that, but I think that um, that's too bad. That's my point of view. And I think it's an accurate point of view. And I think it, it hurt a lot of people in 2020, that very slogan. So if you want to accomplish something, if you really want to get across and you want to have the reform and policing that you want, I think a different slogan would be better. And I think, you know, even... John Lewis talked about how, I forget which slogan, there was something that went during the civil rights movement that they were saying and that it was turning off their allies and they had to rethink it. Right. So you have to do that sometimes. And I think with Defund the Police, people need to do that. I mean, you make a point also in the book, another thing that I think progressives won't love is you make a point of taking a little shot at the notion of woke culture and sort of say, hey, you know, woke culture is not a part of the, it's not really a part of the solution here. It's more part of the problem. I just want to hear you talk about that a little bit. And I know, you know, you often people who are in quote woke culture are fans of Don Lemon, but <laughs> but it seemed like you were trying to make a point there about the ways in which some of the excesses of woke culture may be counterproductive. Yeah, listen, in the overall scheme of things, that's not the real problem. The real problem is right the people who believe that the election was stolen and that there's no systemic racism and what have you. Yeah, but I do think that you can get to a point where you're so woke that you need to take a nap. <laughs> because, you know, I don't, again, I don't like these little cliches or slogans like, um, not a cliche, but these little sl- catchphrases like cancel, cancel culture. Like what is cancel culture, right? That's something that the right uses to, you know, make fun of the left or, you know, have some sort of uses like political leverage and messaging leverage. So I just think that trying to go back in someone's history for something they did years and years ago, decades ago, is not helpful. Like I said, with policing, a one-size-fits-all approach to accountability is not helpful. I don't think that everything, when it comes to a lot of issues, everything is a four-alarm fire. For the Me Too movement, not everything is a four-alarm Harvey Weinstein fire. When it comes to policing, not everything is a four-alarm Derek Chauvin fire. Sometimes uh, police shootings are legit, right? That they, they must save lives on the scene. So I think that it's counterproductive when you, when you look at something one way and everybody has to be canceled or everybody has to be woke or they're not woke, they're not black, or they're not progressive enough. Right. I think that you, you got to be objective in your thinking. You have to be fair. And I, I think that the woke culture has gone a bit too far. I think the pendulum will swing back as it does with everything. But I think right now um, it can it can actually be more detrimental to the cause and it can be helpful and it can give your detractors ammo. I want to ask you one last question before we go to break. And and it's a question about your role, right? Which is, you know, I think it might've been the Wes Lowry writing his, uh, his review of the book, which was favorable in the New York times. Again, we'll say, this is the fire. What I say to my friends about racism and Don has a lot of friends, not just personal friends, but <laughs> a bunch of millions of people who are Don's friends who watch him on TV. And that's really my question. Right. You are the one black guy with a primetime show on cable news. Right. Yeah. So when when we have a conversation about race in America, this is a West Lowry point, like we're if we're going to have the big conversation about race in America, like there's places where that conversation happens. And one of them is in the news business. One of them is on cable news. And you are the only 
African-American man who has the position of privilege you have. You've obviously become more vocal on these topics over the course of your career as you've gained power and, and exposure and been in prime time as opposed to day side, whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you think in a very self-conscious way? I don't mean self-aggrandizing. I just mean, are you conscious of the notion that you have a special role and special obligations and special responsibilities? Or is that all like, hey, don't put that shit on me, man. I'm just trying to do my job. At first, I thought, you know, this isn't fair that um, the standards are different for me than they are for others in the same business. But I, I accept it now. And I do see a certain responsibility because I am the only one. And here's what I've realized over the last five to seven years or so that I've been in primetime cable news is that people are always going to try to to squash your voice, to minimize your voice and to minimize me and my platform and what I say. And what I've come to realize is that if Tucker Carlson can say what he wants on cable news and give his point of view, then Don Lemon can. The difference between me and those folks is that I have to abide by the rules of journalism and truth. So while I may be giving my point of view, I'm not telling people that the sky is brown. I, I can't do that. They can do that. If a Joe Scarborough can give his point of view on cable news, and so can a Don Lemon. And Joe Scarborough, I think, operates under the same rules that I operate under. Right. And so I feel uninhibited and I feel completely emancipated to be able to say whatever I want, because if those guys can do it, then I can do it because I'm just as American and I'm just as deserving of that platform as they are. And it took a while for that. I think I got a lot of criticism in the beginning because people weren't used to seeing or hearing someone like me have a right. platform and totally. say the things that I was saying. And so I wasn't even used to myself. You know what I'm saying, John? And I now do. I, I totally am. Do. And now, you know yeah. what? I just say, fuck it. Of course I can do it. Yeah. And as long as I operate, I operate within the boundaries of truth, regardless of what my perspective is, then I'm good. And more power to you, my brother. And <laughs> it's been a thing to watch. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. And you just mentioned, you just invoked my friend, Joe Scarborough, uh, which actually makes for a perfect segue. So let's take a break here on Hell and High Water with Don Lemon. And we'll come back uh, right after these messages. Hey, sports fans, if you are someone who enjoys Hell and High Water and you are interested in understanding the storylines that are shaping modern life, and I mean, who isn't? Big storylines like the financialization of everything, the world in disarray, and cutting-edge advances in the world of science and technology, then you are going to love and find absolutely indispensable The Recount's newest podcast, The News Items Podcast with John Ellis. Every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m., John and his brilliant co-host, Rebecca Darst, Break down news items from three categories, geopolitics, finance, and science and tech. John Ellis writes one of the very best newsletters in journalism. I'm talking about like, I get a lot of newsletters and most of them wash right over me. This one sticks. It's also called News Items and he's teamed up with Rebecca, who is a veteran financial journalist and someone who just takes a little bit of John's edge off. If you want to feel a little bit smarter or maybe even a whole lot smarter every day and come away with a better understanding of the forces that are changing and shaping and transforming our world, then you owe it to yourself to listen to John and Rebecca and the News Items podcast. Plus, on most days, those two brilliant people have a bunch of other brilliant people who come on. Heavy hitters like Maggie Haberman from The New York Times, Jim Cramer from Business TV, Jill Abramson, Steen Jakobsen, all kinds of great folks. So subscribe to the News Items Podcast with John Ellis now. And we are back on Hell and High Water with Don Lemon, author of the brand new book, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Uh, Don, you were on with Joe Scarborough. 
and my friend Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe just the other day, and you started to go pretty deep on some family stuff related to the book. Let's take a listen to that, and then we'll go from there. I have had, as you know, um, times in my career when people told me that I would would not make it in this business, yeah. especially when I was a journalism student, and I should go do something that was more suited to my abilities. Um, I, it's overwhelming if I actually stop and think about it, because I was always told no in so many ways as a kid, especially a man of color who happens to be gay, who and a southerner, a southerner, I grew up a couple states over from <laughs> There were people who did not believe that Don Lemon could achieve or carry a show in prime time that people would watch and all of these things. And the only person at that moment who believed in me was me. So I'm going to ask you, Don, a, a, a straight up question. I watched this live while you were doing it. And I thought to myself, as I was, I just started looking at the book and your account of, of it is doubt thrown on you from childhood through college, through journalism school you know, through early days in, in journalism, yeah. all the way up to, hey, even now, I still, it's still doubts at dawn, right? And you say at the end of the clip, you say, only I, you know, believed in myself. And I think maybe earlier you said, you mentioned the family also supported you. I'm curious, like where, as someone who had the, the privilege of being supported, you know, and encouraged throughout my life, I mean, I feel just incredibly lucky and, and I guess part of its whiteness, but part of it's a lot of other things too, is just luck. But as having had that much doubt and shit thrown in your face, as you describe it, where did you get the wherewithal to just persevere through it? I mean, this is like a kind of very kind of core existential question, but like, <laughs> what do you think, you know, when you come down to it, all I had was myself, like, where does that come from? The ability to just persevere through, through all of that doubt and all of those doubters. Wow. That's a, that's a really big question. I think what happens is. When you have the doubters and you go through those struggles, inevitably there is something that happens at the same time, simultaneously, that offers the opportunity to move beyond it. The, the very simple answer is, is that all of the things that I thought were hindrances in my life became the things that made me and became the things that, that motivated me. And so whenever someone doubts me, I don't know where this comes from, but I use it as a challenge and I'll say, oh, okay, I'm going to make this work because you're doubting me. Now, that doesn't mean that it was easy. Look, I, I languished in cable news in the afternoons for a long, not a bad job to have for a long time and, and on weekends. But for people who didn't believe in me and who never thought I could move to primetime and I kept saying, I can do this, I can do, do this and I can do this. And finally a Jeff Sucker comes along and says, yes, you can do it. But that whole time I had to believe in myself so that I wouldn't quit. When my journalism professor at LSU told me that I wouldn't make it, I had to believe in myself and keep moving. So I believed in myself and I moved to New York City and I looked for other opportunities. And as I got those opportunities, people still kept telling me I couldn't make it. And I kept saying, I'm gonna do it. I think it's just determination that I'm going to show people. And I also do think, John, quite frankly, as a gay man, a black man who happens to be gay, I think that I'm, I'm an overachiever because of that. Because I had so many things that were against me, I kept, just kept trying harder and harder to overcome them. And I just became an overachiever. But at the end of the day, I believe that there's something inside of me that came from my ancestors that is a giant, humongous, burning spirit of survival. Right. And I just think that I had to survive. 
And I also think that I'm very lucky and very fortunate. And if you believe in God, I think I've also been very blessed in my life. Well, I want to come back to the double threat thing. And I mean double threat in both meanings of double threat, the black plus gay thing. But since you just mentioned ancestors, you know, one of the things you talk about in the book is tracing your ancestry back mm-hmm. to Africa with the help of Skip Gates from Harvard. You, you write about this, so it's not I have a sense of what you're going to say, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what that journey was like, why you decided to embark on it, what you learned beyond the, the novelty that everyone who does 23 Me, it's like, oh, hey, let's go see where I'm from. <laughs> there's a novel, there's a kind of a trivia kind of aspect of, oh, kind of, that's cool. That's yeah. great. But you took away some deeper lessons from it, I think. Oh my gosh. Yes, I did. And just real quickly, the other thing is that I think the interesting thing for me to answer the question before is that I didn't get the success that I have when I was young. Right. And so I got it as I got older. So it made me appreciate it more. And now that I'm 55 years old, there is an urgency in what I do. And so now I just say, F it. Yeah. You already said fuck earlier on the podcast. (laughs) I don't really give I don't really give a fuck. And so I I just think that I've always had that spirit. But the older I get, I just think that's what it is. And I realize that I have one life and I have to live this life the way that I want to. Well, let's be clear. First of all, we're both 55, both on the double nickels, you and me. Okay. Yeah. And I just want to be clear. Like, you you think we only have one life. Dude, I'm on the I'm on the singularity thing. Like, we're going to get life extension. You and I are both going to be still doing this. We're like 143. You know, there's a pill for that right now, right? There's a pill that can extend life now almost indefinitely. Oh, yeah? It's not on the market, but it's being tested. I was sitting at a dinner party with some very smart people who were talking about it. And uh, I believe it's coming. If we can just make it, we're on the bubble. There's no doubt in my mind that people who are like in their 20s and 30s are going to live to be 175. Eventually, yeah. we'll be able to download our consciousness into a silicon chip and live forever. Yeah. The question is whether we at 55 are going to make it. And luckily, I think the pace of progress is just going to make it. We're going to be on the bubble, but we're going to make it, I think. To effectively everlasting life. Yeah. We should freeze ourselves. And then when it happens, we can just bring our, I don't know if I want to be, live in that world because if I'm going to live forever, I'd rather have the body I had when I was 35 yeah. and the, the sharpness I had when I was 45. But <laughs> but anyway, I digress. If you want to talk about yeah. Skip Gates and ancestors. I, I, look, I, I do want to talk about Skip Gates. I just want to say that like it is one of those things when you start to get to be our age, it is interesting because I do think it's a, a common thing. In your experience, the arc of your success is different than the arc of other people's success. But at a certain point, when you get to be about this time, you do start to have that zero fucks kind of quality, which is like, fuck it. Like, I don't yeah, because know. you start to think about mortality. It becomes a real thing yes. to you. Like, what yes, are you going to do? What what, what's your legacy going to be? What are you going to leave behind in the world? And the world one day that you, you won't be here. That's a weird thing to wake up right. and think about. Like one day it just sort of happens, right? Yeah. Except with our, except in our pill in the scenario, we're going to take these pills and still get beyond our point. <laughs> but, that, but, but that was part of the ancestry thing. That I went yeah. looking, looking back at the ancestry is like, you know, all of these relatives of mine who, you know, I'm sure that at one point they thought that they were invincible like I am and that, you know, that death would never come. And they look at the legacy they left behind, which is me. Yeah. But the reason for me that it was much more than trivia is because the records for especially black people of African descent, they only go back so far. Right. So, you know, sometimes two generations or maybe, maybe three generations, great grandparents. Sure. Yeah. And then beyond yeah. that, there's. No record because there's no name. There's no names. It's just tick marks or property. You know, such and such had um, whatever your ancestor's name, if they're white. The way most black people find their ancestry in America is through white people. And because you look back at the plantation that they owned and on this plantation, such and such had four slaves or whatever. And they had 
you know, named Annie Williams, and then she had four children. And right. then sometimes they listed the name, sometimes they didn't. And so for me, because I had white ancestry on both sides of my family, Skip was able to go back a long way on my on my grandfather's side, all the way back, I think, to Scotland or Ireland, yeah. I forget. Yeah. And then on my grandmother's side, went back a couple of generations to plantation owner in Louisiana who gave my family property. And, you know, so yeah, it was interesting. But for me, listen, being a descendant of a slave from America is enough to be proud of. But then when you find out your ancestry beyond that, you really start to feel connected to the world and not just America. It's fascinating to me, you know, that, like I said, I think for a lot of people, these kinds of expeditions into their histories are, you know, mostly exercises in kind of voyeurism of a kind, right? And that kind of true pursuit. I'm going to draw, draw my family tree. But think about it. That's also a privilege too. how easy that is for white people. Yes. It's just really easy for black people. It's not. It's like, oh my gosh, go back. Totally. hundred percent. And you know, my family, my family was worth at one point, my great, great, great grandmother and her, or, or greater, I forget, and her three kids or four kids were worth $1,800 to the plantation owner who ended up becoming you know, my great grandfather, because, or, you know, one of my great, 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 great grandfathers, because he owned the slaves and slept with my, you know, one of my greats. Yeah. yeah interesting. You talk about growing up about the notion that you were like constantly struggling with the notion of being in the black box, yeah. being put in the black box. What does that mean? Well, you have expectations from black people and from white people. White people have certain expectations of you. Usually it's an, uh, they underestimate you, which has been part of my secret forever. People underestimate me all the time. And I'm like, great, un underestimate me. And so it's the thing about, um, what's the phrase, where you promise less and deliver more. And so I've always had the, I, I looked at that as an opportunity rather than a hindrance. It sort of goes back to the whole woke thing that you were talking about. African-Americans expect the, you to be a certain way. And there's not just one type of black person, one type of African-American. You know, there are liberal African-Americans, conservative African-Americans, there are, you know, gay African-Americans, straight, bisexual, and on and on and on. Uh, it's not just one sort of one size fits all urban experience or Southern experience. People have different experiences as people of color in this country. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we don't allow people to be able to express every part of them, especially as a black person. So that's a black box. Then the black box is also colorism growing up, you know, and uh, growing up in Louisiana, there was the brown paper bag test that one had to deal with and who had light skin, who had dark skin, who had good hair, who had bad hair, all those things. There's one thing in the, in this, in the period of writing about your childhood that you don't talk about a lot in the book. And it's, it's obviously a sensitive topic, but I, it did stand out to me where you talk about having been uh, a victim of sexual assault as a kid. Unfortunately, it's not a unique or rare thing. And in, in our society for people to have experienced that, but you do say that I was in part shaped by the trauma of the experience of the daily by the shape of the experience of the trauma of the experience and the daily task of survivorship. Mm -hmm. And when I read it, I thought to myself, the daily task of survivorship, is that still a daily task of survivorship for you? No, not today because I'm not, you know, I, I don't think about those things. I don't live my life in the past and I never lived my life in the past. And the whole reason for revealing that was never any form of revenge or outing someone or just to, to relive the past. I reveal that on, television, it just sort of came out when I was interviewing some kids who were members of a church in Atlanta and their 
pastor had been accused of similar, of such incidents. Yeah. And they said, oh, not the reverend. There's no way. And I said, well, people don't walk around with a, you know, an M for molester on their forehead or an A for abuser. Yeah. I said, people often are not who they present themselves to be in public because I, when I was a young man, this happened to me. And then my mom said she was at home watching TV and she almost fell off the bed. <laughs> and and the kids gasped, but that was the only reason. That was no, you know, it wasn't something that I think about, I struggle to think about daily. But I, after having revealed that, I thought about the way my life had gone and how through that and also being gay, how I sort of had done a lot of self-isolating, mostly being gay as a kid, self-isolating because I didn't want people to know my secret. And that was one of my secrets. I don't, and I don't like to talk about them together because people think they're connected right. when they're actually not. Right. But that was it. I mean, I think I'm a survivor of secrets, but I don't really think about that. And I don't really reveal who the person was. I talk generally right. about who they are. But I think that that also gave me, again, an incentive to achieve. And it also, what it really did for me, John, is that I can see people a mile away. It gave me a sense of perception about people that I don't think I would have had if I didn't have that experience as a kid. Right, right. And, and I, yes, and I, I think that's not an uncommon experience for people who've gone through that, an uncommon quality or ability, uh, perceptual ability for people who've gone through that. I want to ask you the last thing just to come back around and close this loop because you did raise the thing before and just to be a thousand percent clear, sexual assault, homosexuality, no common commonality to them. They have no causal effect. We're not talking about them because they're connected in some way, as Don just said. But you did raise the thing earlier about the double, what I call the double threat thing, which I think in certain circumstances is an advantage. But in much many more circumstances, the notion of being a black man and a gay man uh, is not a, an advantage in professional, in, in mainstream <laughs> society. And certainly not in the media. No. <laughs> so I'm, cu I'm curious specifically if you can talk about like what kinds of challenges you feel like you've faced uniquely because of that a uh, combination of those two things that are both qualities, but both elements of humanity for which people are discriminated against. You have them both. And I'm curious how that's presented itself to you in your career, hmm. if it has in a direct way where it's been a problem. I think it's hard for people now to understand where we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I started out in, in news. And that was something that you just didn't talk about. It just wasn't done. People didn't come out, John. I think you know that. Yeah. People kept that secret. In newsrooms, I would work in certain newsrooms and, and, and it wasn't necessarily out. The, the interesting thing is I moved to New York City so that I could be myself. And as I was starting in the business, like as a production assistant and those things, I was out with with people in the newsroom. And then once I got on air, I couldn't do that because right. the stakes were too high and someone might out me. And it was a thing where people would out you or they would you know, write little rumors and columns about this person being gay and that would yeah. affect your career. News managers wouldn't wanna you know, promote someone who was gay and you know, because they were afraid people wouldn't watch or just because of the criticism. That was very, very, very real. And so I didn't really talk about it professionally and the same thing with being a survivor of sexual abuse. I was writing a book in 2011 about that, not about that, but just writing a book about my adventures in journalism. And I said, I can't write this book without being honest, right? because I'm honest if I'm anything. And I just wrote like one, it may, was a page, page and a half about, you know, and it was when I moved to New York City that I came to terms with my sexuality. Right. And everybody's like, oh my God, Don Lemon comes out. And so, 
<laughs> and so, but, but no one had ever done that. And I knew it was going to be a huge thing because not no one. I mean, there were very few people who were out. Rachel was out and R- Rachel wasn't a traditional anchor, right? She was more of an opinion right. sort of, you know, trend and thought leader. Yep. And there were, you know, there were a couple of people who were out, but not very many. And so, you know, that was, that was very scary. And I think for a long time that that may have hindered my career. And I didn't know about it because I, I think people in the business probably knew and they were afraid to promote me or they were afraid that people would talk about it. Even my representative said, I wouldn't come out. Do you want to be known as the gay anchor? Yeah. You know, back in the day. And I had to really think about that. Yeah. But now, once I did it, it gave me a sense of autonomy and a sense of really control of who I am and a sense of freedom that I had. Right. You know, this weight that was lifted that I really can't explain. I wish everyone could live with the honesty and and the freedom that comes with it because people are still in the closet. Right. Even in the business now, big names who won't, you totally. know, and then they won't they won't come out because they're legitimately afraid that it might affect their career. And I think in some parts it might. I'm sure. But the one thing that I want to make sure that I say here is that if you don't believe that it is real, all you have to do is go look at either social media criticism or even criticism of me, critiques of me in media, and it is often rooted in homophobia and racism. Well, for sure that's true. And you see it doesn't take a magic decoder ring to see it when it comes to you. And we're going to talk in a second about Donald Trump, who <laughs> who's a lot of Donald Trump's views about Don Lemon, the stupidest man on television, seem to be a track with a certain kind of racist attitudes. But I will say this, Don, and I think you'll agree with me because we're both 55 and we both know this in a way that the kids... <laughs> Working on this podcast, for instance, and the, some of the kids listening to this podcast will find it hard to believe what I'm about to say, but you know it's true. When we were 25 years old, if somebody said to you, hey man, you know what? Two things are going to happen before you're 55. One of them is that there's going to be gay marriage legal in America. Mm-hmm. Gay people are going to get married. The other is that weed's going to be legal pretty much everywhere. You would have said no fucking way to no either one of them. Way. It was ludicrous, ludicrous ludicrous that weed would be legal and that gay people could get married across the United States. And it's, it's one of the great upside surprises of my life. And I, I mean that not in a glib way. I mean, it's like, they're both yeah. huge, I think elements of, of coming to, of rationality and progress in our society where the cause that was righteous ultimately won because of social and cultural transformation and generational change. And it wasn't about you know, the left or the right winning. It was just about fucking the right thing. Eventually, you know, the generational change was what drove it on both fronts. But it's amazing because you and I remember when we were 25, we would have thought it was impossible. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And look how that number one screwed up a lot of people because a lot of people who were just smoking pot, right, yes. are now in prison for smoking pot. And now yes. people and now people are making billions of dollars on pot business. Yes. The other thing is that it really fucked up a lot of gay men my age. Because then you had to pretend you were straight or marry a woman or never get married or whatever you live with a roommate. But I never in a million years thought that I would be able to get married. Yep. So when my fiance proposed to me, I was like, what? what? <laughs> and the other thing is like, I never thought that I'd be able to have kids. Yeah. Never. Yeah. And so now I'm going back and forth. Tim, who's younger than me, who's my fiance, just turned 37. Cradle Robert, Don. I, I know. I robbed the cradle. He's like, come on, can we get this kids thing going? And I'm like... Uh, I'm an old man, kids, what? I'm a gay man, I'm not supposed to have kids. So it really screwed up a lot of older gay men. It really did. Yeah, yeah. you're just an old man, you're also kind of slow. You gotta tell Tim, hey man, like I can only move so fast. The old man, the body's breaking down. I can't do this as quickly as you think I- He's gonna have to do it. Most of the work, man. 
Yeah, I'm sure that's right. That's about detailed about that as I want to get on this podcast. All right, let's uh, let's take a break. God, I want to hear about the work Tim's doing. Uh, we're gonna take a break uh, and come and come back on Hell and I Water with Don Lemon uh, right after this break. <laughs> And we are back on Hell and High Water with the Don Lemon, my friend, CNN superstar and author of the new book, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Don has an incredible relationship with the former president of the United States. Gosh. It's a long story, tangled thing. I'd like to listen right now to an interview that Don Lemon did with Donald Trump. Oh my gosh. Way back in 2011 when Don Lemon was a younger man and Donald Trump wasn't yet president. Let's play that. Oh my gosh. Many people are calling you racist. People were sending me email, sending me tweets saying, why are you having this racist guy on? Why, why are you even giving him more attention? Well, I really have to go, but I want to tell you, I am the least racist. I am Okay. A wonderful person as far as you would be concerned as to race. And I think everybody that knows me knows that. What about the, the comment you said when you referred to the blacks, that you had a good relationship with the blacks? Do you understand how some people will take that phrasing? Some people do and some people don't. I mean, I've heard it both ways. It's uh, something that uh, I said. And I think I've had many people say there was absolutely nothing wrong with that comment. Many people say oh, that God. there was absolutely nothing wrong with that contest. I, I bet not very many many black people or any people with decent racial sensitivities or attitudes. <laughs> I got on to him about birtherism, too, in that yes, same interview. Yes, yes, you did. Yes, yes, you did. And he said he didn't want to do an interview with me. That was the night Osama bin Laden was killed. Did you know that? Yes. And it's also yeah. the night. It's also, I think you said later that interview at some point, he said that you were a racist. He said I was racist. Right? Is that the is that the same interview? After that interview, he said you were a racist. I was racist. And so when he finally ran for president, he didn't want to do an interview with me. And so I had to have my booker who knew him, who's known him and his wife for a long time, sort of smooth it over. And so he eventually, he's, you know, I think, I don't, know, I don't remember if he talked to me over the phone or he gave me an interview initially. And then in the process of the interview, he said, oh, actually, you're pretty good at this. You're pretty fair. And I said, well, what do you think I am? But yeah, he said he didn't want to do an interview with me because I was racist. So it's just an interesting question, right? Because this became obviously a very contentious relationship that you had with the president of the United States in which he would tweet nasty things about you. I said before, he was constantly, Don Lemon's the dumbest guy on TV. And you, you know, became very, over the course of four years, there was an appreciable increase in your outspokenness about the things that you thought were problematic. I'll put it mildly about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. But if you go back and listen to that 2011 interview, you know, you guys had like, that was a normal relate. That was like, a, you, know, you were asking him tough questions for sure. But that was like, you were just, you know, a journalist asking questions. You weren't really injecting your opinion into those questions. They were pointed and tough, but they were not like, you were not fulminating about stuff. That was kind of like many interviews he did with a lot of people on a lot of networks by the time when he did interviews with a lot of people on a lot of networks. So I'm curious about how you think about the evolution of your relationship with Trump, how it went from being like that. To, I mean, I'll play a little something a little later about where we got to by January of 2021 with Don mm -hmm. Lemon and, and Donald Trump. But how do you explain the evolution? What's your narrative of what happened over time between you, between you and Donald Trump and within you about Donald Trump over the time that you knew him? Well, I mean, back to the interview that you played was 2011, and he was talking about possibly running for president, but never officially yep. ran. And so I think that, you know, it, it was a different time. 
I certainly held him to account if you listen to the interview. But I don't think anyone thought that he was going to seriously run for president. Back then, he was just a reality television host, right? And so I just wanted to ask him the questions because I thought what he did with the former president, Barack Obama, and the whole birtherism thing was quite offensive. And I said as much. I thought his language around black people was offensive. And I said as much. And so really, not much changed between 2011 and then 2015 when he started to run again, because then he gave me interviews and I asked him very similar questions. If he was racist, if he was homophobic, if he was Islamophobic and all this. And he had basically the same answer. I'm the least racist person. So as he started to run for president, I listened to him. I gave him interviews. I held him to account on things. He did the whole on my show. He said, you know, somebody's doing the raping, talking about people coming across the borders. That became a thing during the campaign. And then he did the blood coming out of her wherever. And then that became a thing during the campaign. And then as it started to go on, I started holding him and the people who came on to support him, his apologist, to account more. And then he stopped giving me interviews. And then I stopped having them on or they became afraid to come on television or come on my show. They would go on shows that would go lenient or easy on them. But there were people at the White House in the press corps who told me that their strategy or people on the campaign, I should say, not in the press corps, people who were following on the campaign, not, not necessarily in the White House, were following the, the campaign. He would not allow certain people to come on my show because they were afraid of being embarrassed. Because how do you, you know, what do you say against the only black guy in cable, right? How do you, you know, call him an ad? But he, then he certainly did. So I think that's why he started to hate me so much. Because if I said, if I don't call out his bullshit, who's going to do it? Because just like um, having this sort of perceptive quality about, you know, people and their motives, black people, especially a black journalist, I had a perceptive quality about his racism, his lies and his bigotry. And then started to call him on it, and he didn't like it. So his only mode of attack was to call me dumb or a liar, which was projection on both terms. <laughs> I, I believe it's possible that the only thing that I will ever be like in Bartlett's quotations for is the only memorable line of mine of the entire Trump administration, which is a good line. And I'm often I've, the rare thing I've said that people give me credit for, which is everything with Trump is always about projection or confession. That's my yeah, that's like that's, the, that's my one contribution to the culture. You're exactly right. You're 100 percent right. He tells you exactly who he is when he talks about other people. And listen. I think that I was the first probably major journalist to call him racist. I opened yeah. up my show and I said, the president of the United States is racist. And yeah. everyone, like I could hear mouths <gasps> dropping and gasps all across America. <gasps> yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, God. really? <gasps> <laughs> I know. And then there were people who were like, yeah, breaking news, Don, you know, from 2011. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trump God, is probably, but longer than that, go back to the fucking, the central, <laughs> he wanted to have the central park five executed for a crime they didn't commit or housing discrimination. Yeah. yeah. All the way back. But here's the thing. The thing I think I told you once, Don, I said, here's the great thing about this. The, the funny thing about it is that the moment when the peak moment of Trump calling you the dumbest journalist on television was also the moment when he was totally obsessed with you. And, yeah. and I knew from reporting that I'd done that he would go home always. He always would DVR your show. He would always watch it. He was obsessed with watching your show. And there were people on his campaign who would try to be like, don't watch Don because he would get so pissed watching it. But he couldn't stop. He was like compulsive. And I told you this at some point. You cracked you up when I first told it to you like years ago. Yeah. Uh, but it is classic Trump, right? He like is the way he treats Maggie Haberman. The same thing. It's like if you got his number and he, and he respects you. 
If he doesn't yeah. respect you, he doesn't bother with calling you the dumbest man on yeah. television. It's like, it's crazy, but that's true. Yeah. But also, I think if I wasn't on CNN, if I worked for a different news organization, I think he would have given me interviews. Yeah. I think obviously, you know, because of his relationship with my boss and because of the power of CNN, obviously, I think that he, if I didn't work for CNN, I think he would have given me interviews because he knew I had his number. But the reason that I was so outspoken is that, quite frankly, Donald Trump was dangerous. And he was a liar or is a liar. And he was a racist or he is a racist. It would be journalistic malpractice if I did not say that. Right. And for people not to point out the obvious. Yep. And I think for a long time, we were sort of just, you know, dancing around it when it, it was right before our very eyes. It was tough for journalists to be able to, to have to say the president of the United States is lying. Yeah. Yeah. Or the president of the United States is a racist. That's really tough. Yeah. But I think we realized that we had to do it because we didn't want to do it because of the respect for the office. Yep. But when the person in the office has less respect for the office than you do as a journalist, there's a problem. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think for a lot of us, it's like I've covered every president since George Herp Walker Bush. There's never been a Republican or a Democratic president that I've ever talked about the way I talk about Trump. And, and the reason that I at some point it was like the man is unfit for office. He's a terrible person. He's a pathological liar. He's a thug. He's a racist. He's a sexist. He's a budding autocrat who has no respect for democratic institutions or for the office or the country and most of the people who live in it. He's different, guys. I'm not being a partisan. I wouldn't talk about Mitt Romney this way. I wouldn't talk about John McCain this way and didn't. I wouldn't talk about George W. Bush this way and didn't. I didn't talk about Bob Dole this way didn't and didn't. This is a different fucking category of menace. And mm -hmm. if you're going to be honest about it, you're going to have to do something different. But here's my question, though, Don, about that, right? So you and I agree about this. You're way more powerful than me because you've got prime time on CNN and you're, you know, you're Don Lemon. Like, I don't know about that. You command millions of the masses and <laughs> like the great and powerful Don. But here's the thing. So we have the same analysis of this, right? But it is a thing. And this is something I want to get to, which is. You know, if you watch the arc of your relationship with him evolve, you know, from when you had a relationship, you mentioned that, you know, you did that great interview with him when you asked him right after he got into the race, uh, when he said the thing about, you know, they're murderers and rapists. And you're like, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean they're rapists? The Mexicans who are coming across mm -hmm. the board. He's like, who's doing the raping, Don? Who's doing the raping? Yeah, somebody's doing the raping. Somebody's like, doing what? the raping, Don. It was like, I remember that interview so well. So we saw the dark side of him when he ran. You knew he was all these bad things. Mm -hmm. Once he got in the White House, he was worse rather than better, right? Mm -hmm. But as that happened, and as you're making these calculations about what is the line, what can I say? How far can I go? What is required of me if I'm going to do this job? Not just what's in, what I'm allowed to do, but what am I impelled to do with this man in the Oval Office? It is the case that you end up being different than what you were when you got into the business. You are saying things on television that you would have never imagined saying. I want to play this right now. So D Donald Trump's now on his way out the door. Somebody says, did Twitter shutting down Donald Trump emasculate Donald Trump? And Hogan Gidley, who works for Donald Trump, this is January of this year. Hogan Gidley says, oh, you could ever emasculate Donald Trump. He's the most masculine president we've ever had. And that elicited this from Don Lemon. I've heard a lot of pathetic things from this White House. This one really takes the cake. A big, tough guy who incited a riot and then hid in the White House for five days and still refuses to take responsibility. He's the president of the United States. He's the most masculine. Come on, man. Shut, shut up. Shut up. He is the biggest snowflake of them all.
<laughs> a great, a great rant, Don. A great rant, right? And and obviously, I agree with it. But here's the question: Given your training, given the way you grew up in the business, given the job mm. you've done over time, to have that be the way you're talking about the president of the United States, I just am curious. Like, is there a moment where you're like, I can't fucking believe I'm doing this? Did it give you any discomfort to have evolved to the point where that seemed like natural to say? Or was it at that point you were just like, got to be said, I'm saying it, zero fucks, let's go. I think it's closer to the latter. Listen, there's always, a, you know, there's always a training where you figure, you know, I have to be a certain way or what have you. But I think that, as, as you said earlier, this is a different person. This is a different time. We are fighting against an assault, not only on the institution of journalism during the Trump era, but an assault on truth and an assault on reality. And what Hogan Gidley was doing was just gaslighting people and fueling the ridiculous, the fires of ridiculousness. And so I think that had to be called out. Listen, I know my role, John. I'm a cable news host. I'm not the anchor of the CBS or NBC or ABC Evening News. And if I were, then my role would be different and I could not be as animated as I am and I'd have to be, but I'm a cable news anchor. And what is required of a cable news anchor is quite different than what's required of a newspaper person, of a blogger, of a, a podcaster, or of an evening or a morning news anchor. And so I think in that moment, I was channeling the outrage of Americans. And I think that's part of my job description as part of what I do at night and evenings, especially at 10 o'clock at night. I mean, it's just an interesting thing. I only ask it just because I totally agree with everything you just said, thousand percent. Um, and it's totally justified. I think there's a human question, though, for someone who came up in the business in a more traditional like it's just hard. Even even if you know you're doing it, it's your role. And it's you your keep right trying to say how old I am, pointing out to people how old well, I, <laughs> I do. I'm the same. I'm the same age as you. So whatever. I'm like, you know, I'm just saying, I think, you know. Yeah, it's tough. Look. It's tough. You came out of straight news, dude. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people felt discomfort. I mean, at various times I would be like, "Am I? this feels weird. Like, I know I'm right to do it. It's tough. I know I'm right to be this critical, but it takes a little while to get used to being that, that outspoken, even if it's your role, it's what you get paid for. Like I said, it's tough to call the president a liar and, and a racist, but it's the truth. It's tough to sit there and channel the rage of Americans. But that is what was required in the moment. I'm not quite that animated about uh, most issues anymore because the ridiculous quotient is much lower now. Yeah, And so I think that you have to break through as a cable anchor. And I, I think as a news anchor and doing what I do, what, listen, John, what I sit there every night, there's very little that's in the prompter that I'm reading. It's me, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I'm not sitting there saying, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Don Lemon. And tonight, we're going to take you first to Minneapolis, where there's a big of a, and now Jane Williams reports. Jane? Like, that's not my show. And I, I mean, I no. can do that, and I've done that for decades, yeah. but that's not my show. And so I think people, by the time they tune in to me at night, they want something different. But yes, it's very tough for someone who grew up with traditional straight-laced journalism to be able to do that. But I think it is what is required in the moment. Yeah. Donald Trump changed us. Well, did Donald Trump change you? Like, how weird is it now to be covering the Biden administration? Do you feel like the threat is gone now? And so 
I got to find my way back to being a little bit more like that's what I, not gone. Okay. Well, that's, that's my question. Like what, what's it, <laughs> what's the transition been like? Obviously I agree with you that the Republican party is still a, a threat. Trump is still out there. There's like, we've talked I've talked about this in the podcast over and over again. I mean, we do have a new president mm-hmm. who was not, it was a normal president. Mm-hmm. Some people say he's a very boring president. Some people say he's very boring and that's part of why he's been so successful so far. There are a lot of things to say about this. So I'm curious mm-hmm. what it's been like for you to make that transition. Cause it's pretty dramatic. Even if you acknowledge that the threat of anti-democratic, autocratic, fascist shit is still in a large part of the Republican Party. The reality is what you cover every night on television is driven by, to a large extent, who is in the White House. And the guy in the White House now is a very conventional politician by the standards of what we got used to for the last four years. What's it been like to make the adjustment to going back to normal? I'm going to cover my job with passion every single night because I love what I do and because I'm speaking to the American people, for the American people. There is an urgency that I have that I didn't once have not so long ago. One was the death of my sister, which I talk about in, in my book. The other was the era of Trumpism and the lies that came out of that and the, the hatred and the toxicity. Uh, and then the other is just a matter of age. So there's an urgency that I have that I didn't have before. So as long as I have this job, I'm going to speak with passion and with confidence and assuredness. Because that's what I what I have to do. I can't do anything else. So that hasn't changed, whether it's Biden in the White House or Obama or Trump, or who, no matter who is in the White House or Kamala Harris, whoever is going to be in the White House. I don't think that that is going to change. But the difference now is that I can speak with a passion and truth, but it's not from a level of absurdity. I'm not speaking from absurd, like this is a theater of the absurd. And so I can speak with the same level of passion when it comes to police shootings in Minneapolis and George Floyd. But I don't think that it has changed as much as you think, because we still had an insurrection in January. That wasn't that long ago. We still have a president who goes on television and goes on whatever media he can and still talks about the lie about the election, that the election was stolen when it wasn't, who still tells lies about the current administration, the current president and about current events and who still is very powerful politically when it comes to Republicans and may end up running again. So I don't really think it's changed all that much, except for the volume has come down a bit. I welcome the boringness, if that's a word, of Joe Biden, the normalcy. I think it's great. And, you know, it doesn't matter to me what it means for cable news or for people like me. It's better off that he is not in charge of the country than than we have sky high rating. This is the last question for you. Uh, This is a big question, okay? because now I got to come back to Trump because of what you just said. You've been asked about this a bunch from this book because you wrote that Trump was the president <laughs> that we deserved and probably needed. A lot of mm-hmm. people ask, Don, what do you mean by that? And you say, you know, helped reveal how racist the country was and, you know, the, the needed part, the deserved part's kind of easy to understand. The needed part is the question that people have questions about. I'm going to ask you a question that goes in a slightly different direction though, which is it, imagine a world where Donald Trump runs again in 2024. Okay. He's mm-hmm. talking about it. Let's let's pretend he runs. He actually does it. Runs and wins. Mm-hmm. Back is back in the White House again. Four years from now, mm-hmm. like maybe the most horrific scenario I could sketch for a lot of people. Like, <laughs> would you feel the same way then that we needed and deserved it again? No. Why? No. Why? Why did we need it in 2016 when he got elected, but we don't need it again? 
I said he was a president we deserved and probably needed. And that was then. Yeah. There's always something that's for a moment in time. Doesn't mean that it's for a different moment in time. I think we learn the lessons of Trumpism, and I don't think we need to go back to that. We know who the bigots are. We know who the racists are. And they're not necessarily people in sheets. They're tiki torches, khakis, polo shirts, business suits, Chanel dresses, you know, designer dresses or what have you. And so they're all out there and we see people for who they are. And that's why I said it was a president we probably needed. Now, would I have preferred a different experience to get to that reality, that realization? <laughs> Absolutely. But th thinking about our society and the way it operates and what happened and how it went down, I think he's a president we deserve because as, I, as we have been talking about, we were living with this false sense of, of reality that we were in a post-racism world. And that's not true. It's obviously not true. It was just beneath the surface. African-Americans knew it. White people didn't see it until Trump unearthed it. And, you, and then they were like, oh, my gosh. You know, it's the yeah. SNL skit with Chappelle and Chris Rock <laughs> from yeah. 2016 that after the election, yeah. all the white people are running around going, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And they were like, well, what can't you believe? America elected a racist. Like, come on. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So my question to you was. Go ahead. You, you were asking me all these questions and you said that you agree with me about Donald Trump. Do you think that we can go back to truth and reality or, or we have crossed the Rubicon? Oh, man, I don't know, Don. I, I, um, we, could have, we could have a very long conversation about this. It's not to me that Trump is out there and that he has still his power in the Republican Party. That, doesn't, that bothers me, but doesn't bother me that much. Trump has always, for me, been more of a symptom than a cause. Donald Trump exposed, capitalized on, was an accelerant for, a coagulant for all of this dark shit in American society. And one of the things that's been a byproduct and a contributor of all of that is this thing that is, I think, one of the most profoundly fucked up things and problematic things for the country to deal with in terms of solving fundamental problems, in terms of creating a just and equitable society, in terms of like just living together in a in something that resembles a community, let alone the beloved community, which is like that we now have not just a division that's polarized along the basis of party or ideology, but along the basis of like fact and belief. And that there's like these two Americas. John Edwards used to talk about the two Americas he met rich and poor, but it's now like just you have these hermetically sealed information spheres where people believe mm -hmm. totally different things about really basic stuff like which way is up and which way is down and which is right and which yep. is left and which is east and which west and i i have no idea how to unring that bell or how to untangle that that mass of yarn it's like it's not about trump it's about a whole bunch of shit that's happened with technology and media that's built on top of that technology and culture and class and race and economics but it it's created this thing that is so pernicious in our society that is what some people capitalize on and some people are trying to fix it but it's really 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 deeply baked in the cake do i think it's like the most important thing mm -hmm. you know for the country if it we're ever going to make real progress is to try to untangle that that mass of yarn but i do not know where to begin and i have no near-term optimism about it getting done i think it's a generations kind of project because i think it took a long time for us to get here and i think it's you know it's been happening over generations and decades and we're now at a place where the social media is so deeply embedded in our society and it's used by so many people and the conspiracy theories are so deep and all that stuff it's not like you can just like this is not win an election flip a switch somebody stands up and says hey you know we believe different things stop that it's like you know it's cooked it's cooked in the cake really deep and so i'm 
super concerned about it and not not very optimistic about it. And I think we're going to have to get down to work on it. And it's going to take a really long time to, to fix it if it's fixable. That's a good question, wasn't it? <laughs> a good question. I mean, what do you what do you think? I, I think similarly, but I think the whole thing, if we can figure out the whole thing is exploitative. It's exploitation. I, I know this is what it is. It's a grift on top of a grift on top of a grift on top of a grift. So these people are taking advantage of people who are vulnerable to conspiracy theories, to the big lie, to having their beliefs reconfirmed and reaffirmed every single day, every single moment, whether it's on conservative radio during the day and and then conservative Fox News or OAN or whatever it is at night. And so those people who are in those industries are grifting off of naive people and people who are just vulnerable to misinformation. And I think it, you know, it just continues until people become more educated. If we can figure out how to educate the common man about people taking advantage of them, then we'd be able to fix it. And I think one way we can do it, as you said, it's generational. We have to start teaching the true history of this country to starting with yeah. elementary school. And then I think it becomes less possible to get an insurrection built on a lie on Capitol Hill once you do that. But it's going to take a long, long time for that to happen. If you think that the country was built in your image, then why wouldn't you go and fight for an election that you think was stolen? Why wouldn't you think that black people should not have equity and equality in society? Because you think the country was built after you. Right. And it's supposed to reflect who you are rather than who everybody is. Well, there's no doubt that truth is in this long twilight struggle that we're talking about here, that truth is at the core of it. And there's also no question that a big part of starting to tell the truth about what America is, is grappling with some of the stuff that it's in Don Lemon's book. This is the fire. What I say to my friends about racism, it's about, you know, making clear that the version of American history that most people have absorbed over the course of their lives is like not it's not entirely false, but it's not remotely, completely clear-eyed or true, and and a lot of it has to do with race. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with race. A lot of it has to do with plunder, and a lot of it has to do with exploitation, and a lot of stuff that's very deeply rooted in the economics and culture of the country. And I commend you, Don. the The book is great; everyone should buy it. But if truth and getting to grips with some of these things are important, you know, you're making a contribution here and trying to and trying to get that conversation started and have we all only have a small part of that conversation it's going to be like i said a big one and a long and a long one but you're chipping in at a pretty important moment so thanks for doing it thank you and thank you for the fight as well i see you john i see you brother <laughs> i see you too don and, and i'll see you well let's uh, let's chip in if we have to and we can both uh invest and get some of that pill that's going to let us live to be 170 <laughs> 374 i don't know i don't think either one of us can afford it on our own but if we pool our resources we might be able to pay for that pill. Let's do that. Uh, thank you, Don Lemon, for being on Hell and High Water. Thank you. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Don Lemon for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is the co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 